Hello, welcome to A Matter of Life and Film podcast. I'm Emilia Rolovich. And I am Peter Bradshaw from The Guardian. Hello. Hello. Well, thanks for coming to talk about The Exorcist today. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Um, so, interestingly, there's been the new Exorcist film, which we've both seen. Yes. So, yes. we're going to be talking about The Exorcist Believer that came out this year. But also the original Exorcist, yes. which came out 50 years ago. I guess we're going to have to sort of compare. I mean... Sadly, <laughs> yes. Apparently the new one is supposed to be a direct sequel to the original. As I understand it, I think I'm right in saying that it's the only sequel that Ellen Burstyn has agreed to take part in. That's not a spoiler, incidentally. Uh, it's quite well known that she has agreed to take part in this film in a way that she hasn't in any of the other movies. In return for what I understand is quite a scarily large amount of money. It would have had to be pretty scarily large to persuade her to be in it, as I understand it, because I don't, I don't think she is quite as invested in The Exorcist as some of the other people involved, but it's certainly interesting to see her. I don't know what you thought. I had a lot of very interesting and conflicted feelings seeing The Exorcist Believer. I mean, I kind of staggered out of the cinema world in Enfield, where it's on. It's on at the cinema. Well, it's also on streaming services. Almost suffering from a kind of metaphysical meltdown, really, as to what on earth <laughs> directors are doing these days and what we expect them to do and how much of their own identity we expect them to put into their movies. And I'll, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. This is directed by David Gordon Green, who is a very clever and interesting man who kind of reinvented himself in a way as a horror specialist and as a horror auteur because he did what most people think of as a really, really good job reviving the Halloween franchise. And he was basically thrown the keys, as they say, to The Exorcist uh, for what is a very kind of high prestige revival of The Exorcist on that basis. But again, I'm showing my age now. I remember... When his first film came out, it was a movie called George Washington. And this was a Terence Malick movie, basically. We all, all of us chin-stroking Guardian types, we went to see David Gordon Green's first film back in the, I don't know, early 2000s was this? I mean, it's a long time ago. And we thought, wow, this guy is the new Malick. He is a serious, serious auteur, and it behooves us to get behind this guy and his cinematographer, who I think was Tim Orr on that stage. And he obviously was a really, really talented, of course, and there's no reason to think that any of that is, is wrong now. But since then, he switched out totally to making commercial movies, uh, big kind of broad comedies with James Franco and Seth Rogen. I think The Pineapple Express was David Gordon Green. And now he's switched over to being a horror guy. And I was thinking, well, Am I, have I made a mistake in thinking that he was in any way invested in a kind of high art approach to cinema? Or does that simply expose my naivety as a journalist and a critic? Is it just expose the fact that I really, like a lot of critics, I'm as innocent as a child when it comes to the actual business of making movies, that directors are people who need to make money. I mean, they need to take a job. And David Gordon Green just decided to, that he could 
do something else in a different vein. So all these long takes, these these Zen approaches to Malachian views and visual compositions, he could put those to one side and take up an entirely different set of visual and rhetorical tools. I know we're totally off the point now. We're totally <laughs> yeah, off the It's a very long first thought. I know. Thought you had That's my first thought. You'll have to hit me over the head with a frying pan to stop me talking about <laughs> stupid things like this. But that what is weird about this, for the first 10 or 15 minutes of this film, and I have to say, first of all, The Exorcist Believer isn't absolutely terrible, but it is kind of terrible. It's terrible when it cranks into gear as a horror film, I think. Mm. But at the very beginning, when it's doing, a, when it appears to be trying to ape the quietest, laid-back intro approach of the original movie, when it just mm. almost ostentatiously says, look, nothing's happening, nothing's going on, nothing's even very scary. It's just this long, long intro bit in Port-au-Prince in Haiti. And actually, the movie isn't bad at that stage because you you get it. I get it. I think, wow, okay, I understand. We are going to pay the audience the compliment of knowing, look, they know they're here to see a horror film, but they don't have to be punched in the face with a jump scare right away in a way that they might with the insidious franchise or anything like that. We can lay back on it and invest in the idea of the characters. So when we've got to know and maybe even like the characters a little bit more, we will be more upset and more discombobulated when something bad happens to them. So far, I think the exorcist believer and the original exorcist are kind of in sync. I mean, it's not that the exorcist believer isn't disrespecting the exorcist in any way. But, and what happens is that then a scary thing happens and then the movie just pops like a balloon for me. I don't know what you thought, that when we have to have little kids in makeup with the contact lenses to make their pupils look white and all that sort of stuff, which is... Mm. Once you know how it's done, the prosthetic work looks pretty cheesy, to be honest with you, then I lose faith in it. That's interesting. I mean, I'm not an, an expert on the director, but I can see, yeah, the opening trying to mirror the um, dig that's happening in the original Exorcist in North Iraq. Yeah, I, I guess it, it was trying to pay homage to it. I didn't think it was as unsettling. Like in the original Exorcist, you have all those moments and... The cameras, you know, just on someone digging, and it, you yeah. know, I yeah. mean, it's these everyday things, but it just feels kind of unsettling, yeah. scary, and the clock stopping, and then Father Merrin, he just seems very disconcerted. I mean, for me, the opening felt quite superficially trying to mirror the the original opening. Yeah, dogs barking. Um, but yeah, there's something about the way it's trying to be a sequel, but also maybe be a remake, because it is yeah. essentially a very similar story. But then again, with this whole sort of creating, I think they're going to do more Exorcist films, and it's like making a whole franchise out of the process of an Exorcist. I mean, it's a, yeah. quite a linear process. It's Is there a, a lot you could do with it? There probably was more they could pull from it, but I just feel like it was the same story. A remake might seek to basically to duplicate the original, albeit with various updating. And I'm, undoubtedly, that's what they're trying to do with it. What I felt is, uh, yes, that undoubtedly they were going for, in what is arguably a slightly problematic way, they've started the film outside of the United States in scary foreign land, scary, exotic 
primitive world of foreignness where evil has taken root and is then transplanted as if in some catastrophic epidemic to the heartland of America. Again, that is a bit worrying and, as nobody used to say in 1973, problematic. Undoubtedly, as in terms of the building blocks of story, it is powerful and interesting. No spoilers, but if we go on to what is effectively Act 2 of The Exorcist Believer, what happens is the, the concept of the little girl, not, not little girl, but like tween, like 13 years old or 14 years old, is effectively split into two. There are two girls, one of whom is the daughter of a single dad whose partner was killed uh, in an earthquake in the kind of prologue sequence, and the other is the daughter of a very strongly Christian couple whose beliefs are basically at odds with this single man played by Leslie Odom Jr. And they go off on a walk into the woods because they are daring themselves with this scary thought of all the scary things that could happen in the woods and they get lost. Now, when they come back, it is, I think, again, a strong, interesting, quite disturbing forensic approach to what's happened to them because, again, nothing objectively is supposed to scare you yet other than the mystery of what's happened. When the movie stays away from explicit supernatural stuff, for me, it's much more disturbing. But then, when it happens in The Exorcist, The Exorcist gives you the kind of low-key stuff, the ordinary sort of boringness stuff. Then it gives you the, oh my God, the psychiatric unit phase of the story. It gives you the kind of rational, clinical phase of the story. And then it goes into the horror. And the great triumph of The Exorcist, I think, from 1973, is that it made all three aspects equally disturbing. I mean, is it just me, Amelia? You're a horror person. Yeah. You, you can tell me. I think you're being a lot kinder than I'm going to be. I think it may have been one of the worst films I've ever seen, to be honest. The act one and two, maybe because I'm comparing it so much to the original, but I mean, right. how can I not? There's something about, like, the opening, I think, is meant to be mysterious. It's fine, but then the whole the two girls basically go missing and they're friends. And then, is it a spoiler just to, to say they become possessed after they get found? I mean, I think that's, you know, what, what are you expecting? But the whole going missing, it just felt a bit, it was just a bit pointless. And the film is an hour and 50 minutes and I thought it could easily have been an hour and 20 minutes. I just thought going missing was sort of delaying. And then obviously you've got to go through the beats of, oh, well, what's wrong with them now? Maybe it's because attitudes to religion have, you know, changed and people, obviously, the original Exorcist, there hadn't really been a film like that and there was a lot of religious outcry and fervour and things that even came out. But then now, I, I think the portrayal of the religious people in the film, they're just very annoying and I guess they're supposed to try and be the helpful one. There's, there's like a lot of proselytising and all of that. What I really love about the original Exorcist is that Father Karras, who is going to be the priest who basically um, Chris, the, the mother, her daughter's possessed, you know, is going to go to for help. He's having a crisis of faith. He doesn't really believe in this whole exorcism thing. People aren't pretending that they know how to do an exorcism. And, and, you know, like when you see the priests hang out together, they're like drinking. It's quite dark. They're not talking about how much they love Jesus and Jesus is going to save the day and have faith. And there's something more real about that and I feel like you see the 
priest and the religious people in the original Exorcist as more human. They're sort of going through the motion and the steps of having to do the exorcism in the end, but you have this feeling that they aren't totally sure, whereas the people in Exorcist, the believer, are like so fervently, you know, you've got to believe, blah, blah, blah. And I don't think they're meant to be portrayed as like bad people, but there's various religions who try and sort of come yeah. together to solve oh, yeah. the whole I mean, thing. It becomes a bit ridiculous, whereas there's something that feels more real in the original one. What I would say is that, for me, the new exorcist represents a kind of... Well, it would be too facetious of me to say it's a woke exorcist, but the original believed in a single, clear, authority figure who was the priest played by Max von Sydow. Uh, it wasn't necessarily anti-clerical or anti-Catholic, uh, although William Peter Blatty, the original author was quite anti-Catholic and was very critical of organised religion. But that's what the original exorcist was about. Max von Sydow's figure, the f he was the driving force. You had to submit to his authority. You realise he was frail and vulnerable as a human being, but you didn't question it in a kind of larger ideological or political sense in a way that this new film is sort of trying to say. In other words, they're saying, look, nowadays in the 21st century, look, we aren't necessarily going to bow the knee to this white male figure of clerical authority. We are, on the contrary, going to take a more uh, comparative internationalist view of organised religion. We are going to say maybe the Yoruba customs are of equ entirely equivalent validity and power to Catholic customs. And Chris McNeil's character is supposed to have written a book and she says that she's made a big study and that every single society, every single religious culture, form of community, they all have their exorcist religions. They all have their exorcist tropes and cultures and, and procedures. And so the movie kind of tries to spread the bet, if I can put it like this. And I think that's what dissolves it and it sort of disperses uh, some of its power, I think, a great deal of its power. Uh, and it's not simply that you're thinking, oh, my God, another exorcist film. It's that they try to mess with the formula in a funny way. I, I wish they had just tried to remake the movie. That would be interesting if they just had a, another priest, maybe a, a female priest or something like that. Again, we're on to Act 3. Mm -hmm. I've got another thought about to Act 2. But Act 3 is all about religion. Is religion a good thing? Is religion a bad thing? Is religion the problem? Is religion a problem of at least equivalent in our minds to Satan himself. It, you know, there are other people who think that, well, organised religion is bad. I, I agree with the whole throwing more religions and more... I mean, for me, maybe another problem which is related to this, there's just too many people. I mean, it's, yeah, sort, of, it's, it's yeah. sort of like double the possessions, basically two girls are possessed to their friends, there's like yeah. triple the religions. It's yeah. like, you know, this lady from a religion I can't remember but it's not Christianity and she's like I'm going to make a salt circle then there's like a nun who's like I want my chance at yeah. doing something special and yeah. then it's just kind of chaotic and not in a good way whereas with the original Exorcist it just feels a lot smaller a lot of the film takes place in that one house it feels more chilling because they're trapped in the situation and there's very little help that is around. Yeah. I guess maybe Exorcist, the believer, is saying it does explicitly say this. It's like 
you know, it's about people coming together and community and that's going to save the day. And it's just kind of wishy-washy. I Absolutely mean, wishy-washy. And I even the outcome is a bit vague. It's like, so all these religions who came together, like, did, did that really solve it? Or was it the dad, basically, the dad is not a believer and he's a bit sceptical and the dad sort of gets involved a bit in a non-religious way. So maybe it's saying everyone contributed a bit. I mean, I'm not entirely sure. Another thing I think was a bit watered down was the dad. I think his name is Victor. Sorry, I keep saying like the dad, the blah. Mm-hmm. But there's again, there's just too many characters. And I, I, you know, okay, I believe it is Victor. He mostly seems a bit irritated at the situation. I feel like with Chris in the original Exorcist, it's a brilliant performance. She is so distressed. You can see she's... Yeah. on the verge of a breakdown he yeah. seems more like kind of like oh, i guess you know i gotta yeah, exactly. i gotta deal with these religious people who are trying to help or i've got to yeah, exactly. you know whatever there's sort of a sense that it doesn't feel as like as big of a problem which absolutely i think nearest he comes to giving a good performance is before again i've got to come back to this before anything bad has happened when he is rowing with the other parents when all that's happened is that they're just lost in the woods. That seems n- much nearer to real than when, oh, it's suddenly jump scare city. Oh, you know, there's something else we should talk about when Chris, she's talking to Victor, the dad, and then he's like, you know, are you in the room during the exorcism? And she was like, no. He was like, why not? And yeah. she said, to tell you the truth, patriarchy. And she actually <laughs> that. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, it's like they forgot what happened in the original. I'm like, that's some way to talk about the two priests who died saving yeah, exactly. the water. Uh, did they die and go to hell or did they just die? It's one of the great questions. I was going to say maybe there is no hell, but I guess if she's possessed by a demon. Oh, no, devil, I think I guess, you have to assume yeah. that there is. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, I hope they're fine. I mean, like, yes. like, like they're real people or something. I don't know. Um, and also, she's wearing very comfortable pajamas. Maybe she asked, she was like, you know, I'll do this, but I want a lot of money. I want to be comfortable in yeah. my beachside house in my like cashmere pajamas. Yeah, maybe it's her real house. I, mm. I, I don't know, but I respect the hustle. It was a horrible arc for her character because she apparently is like written a book about her daughter's experience. Where like at the end of the original Exorcist, you get the feeling that they just want to leave and never talk about it. So, I mean. It's a mess, but I did enjoy seeing her. She's a true professional. She gives a great performance. And happy yeah. class. I think so. It was just missing like the traditional priests for me. In the original one, the priests are actually priests. I mean, apart from Max von Sydow, like he's an actor, obviously. But then Father Karras, I don't know if he was already acting, but he definitely was a priest and then dropped out and basically begged Friedkin to be in a film. Then like, you know, the other priests, they're actual priests and... I don't know, the priest to movie star pipeline, I just think it's kind of fascinating. In the new one, this Baptist kind of preacher who's wearing a suit, it just felt very... I think it kind of throw, throws away the, the effect of the dog collar as well. I just think it is an it's amazing very... kind of... With such a small costume change, you can really make a difference to what an actor's face looks like with a, with a dog collar. Yeah. I always like an actor with perhaps slightly going grey, but not necessarily old, but slightly going grey with a dog collar. Awesome. They're classy and you could take them seriously. I think it was like a Baptist church in the new one. They have shot glasses of wine. Maybe that's a COVID thing. Do all churches do that now? I haven't been in like years, so... Because normally it's a goblet, right? But yeah, there's something about the feel of the religion which was really muddled and it just felt too kind of happy for me. Somebody's got to be haunted. It's got to look... That's why Donald Sutherland was always getting cast as the haunted, troubled priest. 
Yeah. Always. I mean, it's even, there's even a sort of Simpsons joke about it. That's what the the role he was stuck with really from then on was. And you need a kind of Donald Sutherland role. That's why I'm thinking, well, why not, instead of rebooting it, you could remake it and have a woman priest. That would be interesting too. And, well, we had a kind of ex-nun. I mean, yeah, there are a couple of women in it trying to do some kind of... Mm ritual they sort of got drowned out by i guess the dads shouting <laughs> no I'm kidding i guess they're, they're striving for like some kind of balance like they, they can all shout random chants and see if anything works that's what making films is yeah. random shouts but i think with father Karras, like when we see him performing a mass we don't even see the congregation we just see like him staring into space we know he's a priest who's lost his faith but he just feels very down on himself you feel for him and you want him to find something and like in this film as i said yeah i already said this but the religious people just they're just a bit too hyped up on their own i don't know religion helium and they just won't shut up and it's like i just want a chill priest i a chill priest yeah maybe a slightly liberal priest you want somebody who's kind of i don't know but then even when father Karras is talking to the a detective who's investigating chris's director slash friend yeah. we was talking to father Karras about that and is it linked to some like random dark magic witchcraft and they they have some banter and it's this sort of like light moment and mm. you know it's not like laugh out loud but it's got something funny in there and it's just interesting somebody who worked on the script for the believer film yeah that they are in comedy yeah but i guess we never really see any kind of like i know it's a horror film but you know sometimes if it's something that feels very everyday you want a bit of humor to make it feel like human the other thing that the exorcist had and i i bang on and on and on about this and i feel like i'm becoming a real stuck record <laughs> about this subject is what the originals exorcist had is it had that amazing and very upsetting scene in the hospital when the child linda riggins character has to have a scan which in the mm. early 70s it was the equ- equivalent i guess of an mri scan now but in those days, it was a brutal, almost 19th century. She had to have her neck swabbed with this kind of cold antiseptic brown liquid. And when I first saw it, I could feel that liquid on my neck. It was at least as scary as anything else in the movie. And then she had to be injected in the neck. And then her whole body was surrounded by this metallic, clanging photographic equipment. And it was even more horrible because Chris McNeil is forced to watch. And at the time, I thought, wow, this is the same as, or possibly worse than, Malcolm McDowell having his eyelids clipped open and forced to watch something horrible. Mm. Again, what was part of the genius, part of Freakin's genius, part of Blatter's genius, is to juxtapose this clinical horror, this clinical investigation with the religious or anti-rational interrogation that forms the rest of the movie. And I thought, again, I've never seen anything like that in any other horror film or any other film. My God, I feel I feel creeped out just thinking about it right now. It's just in- incredible, really. But you're right. You felt, when you watched the original Exorcist, I felt scared of the idea of the bedroom that she was in, the mm. idea that Occasionally, the grown-ups would have to leave the bedroom and go downstairs to the kitchen and sort of have tense conversation. What the hell are we going to do? All right, we're going to have to go back up there. Back up the stairs, approaching the door of the bedroom, opening the door of the bedroom. And when I first saw the movie, I thought, 
Jesus, when you're on the threshold of that room, when you open the door and think, what the hell are we going to find in there? What, is she going to be asleep? Is she going to be sitting up screaming at us in the in the creepy voice? Is she perhaps going to have gone back to normal for a bit? Yeah, All those things. Soup or, yeah, exactly. Know. Is she going to throw up? Is <laughs> there, are we going to get the head swiveling there? You know what? It was genuinely scared, that idea of a threshold moment. Again, it's not simply that I can't think of any any other horror film that's delivered anything like that. I can't think of any other film in a way for the for the life of me that scared me as much as that. Well, no, I, I, I completely agree when she's having the the operations. I think William Friedkin, he's done a lot of, you know, documentary work and his style is quite documentary. Right. So when it's being right. filmed, it just feels so stark and detached and like we are watching a real procedure. And I think it was in The Leap of Faith where it's a documentary and William Friedkin is talking about the making of The the Exorcist. And he said that was a real procedure with real doc. I mean, obviously, if it's a real procedure, it'll be real doctors, but right. a real right. procedure. So, you know, Linda Blair actually had to go through that. And in terms of the bedroom, I think as the film goes on, you can see it becomes almost more like a hospital room and the film just it gets cooler in tone. The rooms look more stark. In Exorcist the Believer, I don't know if it's because I watched it on my laptop, but everything felt in the hospital and other places felt sort of warm and dark, sort of like quite like candle lit. It was yeah. it was kind of odd. It didn't feel Okay, it's a horror film, it's got to be kind of dark. But, you know, in, in The Exorcist, when it's nighttime, I'm like, I can see what's going on. But in this one, I was like, I can't, can someone turn the lights on? I don't know. Like, I Do mean, that's a bit a nitpicky, maybe. But also, it's just the atmosphere the new film conveys. I just don't really feel anything as much. Whereas no. with William Friedkin, I think he uses that documentary style. He uses mm. how the house transitions into this place of horror like he does that so well you feel like you're yeah i mean apart from everything else this the, the exorcist believer kind of has to cheat the narrative moment when she's taken away from the psychiatric hospital and is allowed to go home i mean she's already in an absolute basket case screaming having to be kind of tied down and we have to accept that the medical establishment are going to say, oh, all right, well, well, you know, we'll let you go home. Really? I wouldn't let her go home if I was in there. But the original exorcist made that much more believable. And also just the size of the bedroom. When you went up those stairs and into Regan's bedroom, it just looked smaller. It just looked like a kid's bedroom. It looked like, how are we going to get everybody in here? How are we going to wedge four or five grown-ups around this bed? Now that the set they've built for The Exorcist Believer, all the rooms were sort of huge. You kind of had lots of, weirdly, lots of tracking shots of the camera swooping across the apartment and every single room looked kind of giant. Uh, and it just didn't have that sense of intimacy and claustrophobia mm. that the original that the original had at all. I mean, I thought that was, I don't know, it just looked like they almost designed the set with G chat GPT. I mean, it just didn't, <laughs> did, didn't look right. I, I really didn't think it looked right at all. Maybe we should talk about the fact there's like the director's cut. I've got to be careful what I say here. It does not have the one that's in cinemas or came out in cinemas earlier this year for the 50th anniversary. It does not have a moment which does seem to divide Exorcist fans, which is the spider walk scene yes. down the stairs. Now, some people think that's brilliant and some people think, no, it's... It's over the top. I think on balance, it's too much. Although undoubtedly, it is a very striking scene. But I think it's something to do with leaving the bedroom for me. I think the, the bedroom is such a great symbolic location because for any 
young person growing up, the be your bedroom and your bed are like the primal scenes of your private innermost self. And so for that to have gone wrong, for her bed to be literally jumping about as if it's on a sort of boat on the ocean or whatever, that's very disturbing. I think as a kind of almost aesthetic judgment, I think he's right not to put it back, in my humble opinion. Hmm. Yeah, I understand that point. I don't think it takes away from the horror of the bedroom for me necessarily, but then perhaps that's because I know that that's the one out of pocket thing which everyone knows about that, yeah. you know, the one time she's really really possessed as opposed to a bit possessed. But yeah. I guess there are different stages of the possession. But I think because maybe it's a sort of one-time random thing that's in that cut, I'm sort of like, okay, and then it'll be back in the bedroom and it'll be a bit more, like, contained and, yeah, you know. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to raise the larger point of whether it's... I'm <laughs> Tell me if it's too soon to be talking about this. Is it possible to be really scared anymore? I mean, do you... Mm. I mean, I sit down to films... I, even for horror films that I like... One of the things, one of my little, again, a little bee in my bonnet is that if you come out of a comedy and it's been a success, you might say to everybody, wow, that was great. I laughed all the way through it. Mm -hmm. And if you come out of a, a weepy, you can say, oh, my God, I was crying all the way through it. But when you come out of a horror film, horror fans, people at, let's say, Fright Fest, mm -hmm. they're not coming out saying, oh, my God, I was terrified. They come out saying, yeah, I laughed all the way through it. It was great. Do people not really expect to be genuinely scared by horror films or anymore? Or has horror evolved to offer you something else? You see, I'm not, I'm not saying it in a critical way. I'm saying has horror evolved to give you a kind of sensual frisson, which is like being scared, but maybe not quite the same? No, that's a good point. I mean, there are horror films which don't scare me, but, but which I really love. I mean, Rosemary's Baby. It's one of my favourite films but it's never really scared me. I don't know if it's because it's you know from the 60s and some of it doesn't maybe just feel as scary anymore. But for me, I like it because it's slow, it's tense and it's atmospheric. And I think sometimes that's that can be the appeal of a horror film. It's less about feeling like really over the top scared and more just feeling uncomfortable. I don't know why that's a feeling which can be enjoyable. I guess there's, you know, the separation of, you know, you and... The screen and, and you know it's not real that's interesting <laughs> i'm shit scared oh god i'm okay. such a wuss <laughs> no i get it maybe it's because i've seen it so many times i actually am scared by rosemary's baby i, I picked mean, the wrong one no well i know i get it i get it but then yeah there's that but then there's ones that really get your heart racing you know you're like oh my god like for me the first time i saw the original texas chainsaw massacre and it's basically just like one long chase and, you know, you're just like, ugh. And when I still watch it, I still have that same feeling of like, oh my God, you know, get away. And, you know, that final scene where she like just about escapes. Spoiler. Yeah. But I mean, it's slightly from the 70s, you know, it's not really a spoiler. It's weird, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because yeah. I think we all of us, I think I have a false memory of it as being horrifically violent all the way through. In fact, it, there isn't as much horrible violence in it as you kind of you just think oh my god that must be about people's bodies being ripped apart by a chainsaw for 90 minutes in fact mm. it's not like that it's actually well it's absurd to start talking about it in terms of subtlety it's more subtle than that nobody ever thought that the texas chainsaw market subtle exactly but it, you actually have a sort of an impression on your mental retina which is sort of wrong but yeah. that's 
almost unique in actually for Texas Chainsaw. I wouldn't say I was a Texas Chainsaw Massacre expert by any means, but uh, <laughs> I think it's it's a very ex- interesting example of how a kind of almost physiological reaction to a film mm. dominates what you remember, what you think you remember about it. Yeah, so I guess in terms of horror, I think for me, I, I just like to feel something, whether that is genuine fear or just feeling unsettled. I mean, even laughing as well. Some horror films can be quite funny, maybe so bad they're good. The idea of laughing at horror, people do. I mean, that is one of the things that I think I don't quite get. I mean, I get horror comedies, like, say, An American Werewolf in London. I would say that is an example somewhere of a movie which is funny, but is scary. But I would say not really at the same time. You see, sometimes when people say that horror films are funny, I just think, are they funny, really? Or are you saying, well, it's kind of funny for a horror film or it's kind of scary for a comedy. And sometimes the horror and the comedy act as, as, as sort of alibis for each other. And, and I don't kind of get either one or the other. But I would say probably American Werewolf in London is something where I genuinely think it is funny in that it's set up as a comedy. You can imagine it being a comedy all the way through mm. without anything scary happening at all. You can imagine it in that they are very good performers who can sell and play verbal and physical comedy very effectively indeed but it is also especially it's the pioneering transformation scene which is genuinely very scary and probably hasn't had the place in history that it deserves because it's in a kind of funny or semi-funny film i would say a movie like one that occurs to me i, I saw when i was a teenager with a bunch of my kind of yobbo friends was tobe hooper's the fun house which had a horrible scene in it of somebody being ground to death in the wheels of the machinery of a ghost train or the machinery of a a kind of carousel. And it just had somebody crushed to death. And we were watching it kind of drunk, watching it on a video. It would have been an old-fashioned VHS, this dates me, VHS copy. (laughs) And all of my friends were really laughing. I mean, they weren't putting it on and they didn't seem to be laughing out of nerves to try to say, oh, we're not scared. They genuinely thought it was funny. And I had to pretend that I thought it was funny as well, but really I was sort of a bit upset. Uh, in my heart of hearts, I was a little bit sort of, oh, I think that's horrible. But it certainly had an effect on me. Uh, it certainly had an effect. He was kind of a genius, Tobe Hooper, at conjuring these horrible moments. Very interesting. I wonder if we should talk about the music in The Exorcist. Originally for the original Exorcist film, William Friedkin actually wanted Bernard Herrmann, who's you know scored lots of Hitchcock films, to come up with something for his film. Um, and unfortunately, William Friedkin said it was the biggest disappointment of his life. Uh, Bernard Herrmann saw cuts of the film and said, oh, you know, this is horrible, but I can cut up with a piece of music which is going to save this film and it was apparently this over-the-top kind of church organ score and William Friedkin hated it and when you watch The Exorcist now it's just not really the vibe it's more quiet. Of course the iconic piece of music that is in The Exorcist is Tubular Bells. In the new Exorcist film they actually reuse the Tubular Bells yes. music, the dun dun, you know. I wouldn't say it has the same impact. Well, the first time I heard it, I heard it at school. Our music teacher played it to us at school, and I had no idea that it was being used in The, the Exorcist. I had zero idea. But 
our very, very earnest music teacher who wanted to show that he wasn't just a stuffy old classical music guy. He wanted, he was down with the kids and he knew all about pop music, namely this new sort of long-haired layabout called Mike Oldfield. And he actually took out the old vinyl copy with this huge kind of tubular, very interesting, slightly surreal image of the tubular bell floating above a sort of sylvan scene, very 70s album cover, and played it to us. And we all thought, wow, what a lovely, gentle tune. And so from then on, I've never managed to quite get my head around the fact that it's actually been used for one of the scariest things ever. And I've still never quite managed to make my brain track up. I have a weird, weird memory about it, a weird, weird personal relationship with Mike Oldfield, I guess. Oh. No, that, I guess. And, and that was before you ever watched this the film? This is before I ever watched right. the film, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'd, what I'd done was we... I heard that. I had no idea that it was part of the film. And then we, as a lot of us, read the book. There was something kind of sleazy and cheesy and a little bit leery about paperback bestsellers in those days, in the 70s. They were sexually explicit in a way that we weren't ready for at all because the, nobody stopped us reading the book they I think that our teachers at school they would have sort of thought wow you're not allowed to read Lady Chatterley's Lover or something like that, <laughs> I wouldn't have said that but they might have noticed it but the exorcist they didn't realize that there's actually quite sexually explicit it was like at the same time I was reading Peter Benchley's original novel of Jaws because I'd been to see Steven Spielberg's Jaws of course and like all of us who have read that novel and incidentally reading that novel against Steven Spielberg's film is a brilliant way of understanding what Steven Spielberg thinks is acceptable in popular entertainment because that novel like William Peter Blatty was sexually very explicit and I was sort of wow this is a little bit Larry oh my god with the music yeah it is associated with the exorcist and it's got this spine tingling kind of mystical quality to it but yeah. I think it's yeah. when Chris has just left you know, this film she's shooting, and then coincidentally, Father Harris. Sorry, I always have to hesitate. I'm like, there's, there's several fathers in this film. Yeah. And then she starts walking, and then the music comes in, and then she sees Father Harris. And then I think from that point, they have these almost not quite mirrored stories, but you know, like she is obviously feels like she's losing her daughter, what's going on with her daughter, and then. Father Karras, his mum has died and he has that jarring dream sequence. So then you feel like you're following these two and then they sort of come together again. And I think in this weird mystical sense, there's this sort of larger power. I mean, like not a god or, you know, necessarily, but there's this force that's like yeah. bringing them together. Oh, and yeah. I like that kind of strange feeling of they're meant to come together, even if it's for this horrifying experience. But then... So I guess maybe an exorcist believer. It tried very obviously to have that wider message of everyone's got to come together and we've got to stop evil or something. And then that's that. And, you know, it's quite shallow. I mean, the other weird, again, we're back to the metaphysical crisis of faith in auteurism, if we're coming back to that subject, is that <laughs> this film is co-written by Danny McBride. Danny McBride, who is a brilliant comedy writer and who presumably has come into contact with David Gordon Green, of course, through his yeah. Pineapple Express face. I mean, Danny McBride, who did the brilliant TV show Eastbound and Down mm -hmm. and made the very distasteful, but I thought quite funny, stoner comedy, Your Highness. He's kind of vanished from the scene a bit, Danny McBride, but I always thought he was very funny. And again, he has just come on board with this movie and he's obviously, I can just about bet, a huge horror fan. He's probably a real nerd, a real horror fan, and knows exactly how to put the building blocks together. But 
my own experience is the last time I really saw a movie that was going to scare you because everybody believed in it and had the same kind of impact was, I would say, probably the, the original Blair Witch Project. Now, I say that a lot of people don't like the Blair Witch Project and they think it's overrated, but I think that was a movie where it had a kind of impact in the culture, in a way, because... It, I thought it was scary, and I was immersed in it, in a way, because it didn't seem to be as formulaic. It seemed to be completely different from the formula that had come before. And it was part of the digital handheld camera revolution, in that the digital revolution mm -hmm. seemed to bring with it a whole new bag of tricks, basically, a whole new storytelling procedure, which shook things up. Yeah, I mean, is, is the whole people thought it was real kind of an exaggerated thing, like people watching the silent film and thinking a train was coming at them? Or, or, yeah. or was that a genuine thing? Did people actually think, oh, is this Some people real? genuinely did. And I'll tell you why I know that. I, I didn't believe it. When I first saw it, I thought, I get it. It's funny. <laughs> it's funny to pretend that, that like... Orson Welles and the War of the Worlds, people were running around screaming, oh my God, this is actually happening. Right. But I vividly remember a rather elderly gentleman who was uh, a, a film reviewer for the local papers somewhere in North London. He came up to me and said, I don't think it's real. I think they made, <laughs> I think they made it all up. Oh, and I went, yeah. what? You're kidding. Oh, yeah. what a Swiss. What an absolute cheat. So I actually am in a position to tell you, yes, some people if not fooled by it, They're certainly. Bamboozled. They were bamboozled, yes. And I suppose with, you know, the whole how does horror have an impact, I mean, you talk about Blair Witch and obviously at the time of The Exorcist. Well, I'm going to read, if I bring out my random research, I don't know how much we take this with a pinch of salt, but a New York Times article from 1974 noted that theatre officials reported it is a rare showing in which at least one viewer does not faint or become sick to the stomach. And Catholic clergymen reported that they are frequently being called upon to assist such persons. So I guess when you read that, and that's come as a result of a horror film, you think, like, today, could a horror film do that? And I think with the whole new Exorcist rebooting, and then you've got the Halloween thing, and then another Saw film, I guess the formula now is to sort of franchise everything mm, or reboot yeah. familiar things. But, I mean, it's sort of a shame. I mean, I guess I'm talking on, like the more big budget stuff. I guess, you know, if you go to Fright Fest, you'll see some more original films. But, you know, will they reach a larger audience and have some kind of giant cultural phenomenon sort of impact? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think... I don't know. Maybe I'm forgetting something really big. I'm a horror fan in my way, but I wouldn't <laughs> regard myself as an absolute horror expert because my experience, horror fans are some of the most intelligent and passionate film lovers in the world so and they always know more than you when you raise the subject of horror so I am always very very cautious when I talk about horror but one of the things I think is amazing about horror is that it is all about cinema as a shared experience I mean obviously we can get freaked out by watching a great horror movie late night on tv and then we think oh god I'm scared to go to bed I mean that's something that's an experience we've all had but in a way it's nowhere near as exciting. It's not the kind of roller coaster ride of being in a theatre and the, the lights going down and you're thinking, oh my God, this film's going to be so scary. And we owe horror a debt of gratitude, all of us in the film loving community, because horror is doing its bit to maintain the idea of cinema in theatres, I think. That it really is. And it's something I think you and I were talking about. Uh, we were talking about The Exorcist as it was in 1973. It was a very modern film in that 
people were genuinely shocked, apart from everything else about the, the hospital scene, they were genuinely shocked about bad language as well. They were genuinely shocked to see a child <laughs> using the C word, even though, of course, it's not the child, it's, it's the sort of devil within her. Mm. But they were genuinely shocked and freaked out in a way. And I think it, it harks back to something older. It's a, in a way, it's a pre-code movie. It's a film that harks back to the kind of lawless Wild West of 1930s Hollywood when you could get something like, I don't know, Todd Browning's Freaks or something like that, and that it would be OK because the authorities of stultifying middle-brow good taste had not descended on Hollywood and decided, no, you will never do that ever again. And it wasn't for another 40 years when the gunslingers of the new wave I'm not sure that's how Freakin would describe himself, but certainly there, there was that mood that would hark back to something, a, a kind of a freedom, the amazing freedom that cinema had. Yes, and I think that's kind of the wider problem that a reboot of The Exorcist, I mean, is it ever going to have that amazing impact of Friedkin's original film? Even though Exorcist Believer is terrible... I'm just not sure if any new version could really live up to the 1973 version. But I guess we'll see what's coming up next. So this one is Exorcist Believer. The next one's going to be Exorcist Deceiver, which will be released in 2025. So we've got Believer, Deceiver. And I'm thinking, is it going to always have to rhyme? Yeah. So what else have we got? I was having a really slow evening, I don't know. So I went on rhyming dictionary and basically just looked up three-syllable words okay. for that. So, I mean, we've got achiever, but that's, that's too upbeat. Like maybe a priest who is young yeah. and he wants to achieve fame and he yeah. kind of has like an Icarus moment. Brain fever. That, I mean, that yeah. could work. I think conceiver. I could see that being... So maybe she's pregnant and then has like an alien moment. There's Weaver. Oh, yes. You could have dream, an old... Dream Weaver. Dream Weaver, yes. Or you can have an old-fashioned Weaver. I oh, think Meat Cleaver. I, I would cleaver. watch that. Yeah, it's Meat exactly. Cleaver, like the Texas Chainsaw one. Swamp, That's true. Swamp Fever. Swamp Fever, yes. Like the Shrek version. Like yes. Retrieve Her. I don't know. that. Retriever. I feel like rhyming... An adorable dog. It could be like Marley and Me. Yes. An adorable golden retriever. Yeah, so if Bloomhouse could please, you know, not use any of those ideas without yeah. our permission. Yeah, well, you know, we'll, we'll be here all day coming up with uh, these amazing ideas for new Exorcist films. Well, I think, is that a good place to leave it? I'm not really sure. But if you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on Instagram. All the details are in the show notes. Thanks, everyone, for listening.